Today on this episode of The New Deal, I'm talking about the ever-evolving situation on the spending and infrastructure bills, as well as how Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are destroying what may be the most beneficial bill the middle class has ever seen. That and more in this episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the New Deal podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Nutini. For more from the New Deal, head on over to thenewdeal.com for podcast episodes, blog posts, and YouTube videos. Please follow on Facebook, YouTube. Head on over to medium.com for some other articles. And please, if you're watching, listening, please write and review. Let me know how I'm doing. I would really appreciate it. We have got a lot for this episode today. It might be a shorter one, uh, but it's relevant. And I'm mad about it, or I'm frustrated with it. So we'll get right into it. Uh, just one one story today, one subject today. Usually I do a few. You know, I talk about COVID. Not even going to talk about COVID today. Not going to make an entrance. Uh, today, I'd like to talk about this spending bill, the appropriations bill that's trying to pass the Senate. A little bit of background here. There are two major bills that the Democrats are trying to pass. The first is an infrastructure bill that costs about $1.2 trillion. And the second is this spending bill, which is being done through something called the budget reconciliation process, which means they don't actually need Republican votes to pass it because it's a budgetary issue. They can do this, I believe, once per fiscal year, use this reconciliation process. Basically, you're passing policy through funding. So that's the process that they're trying to use here. Originally, aspects of both, or basically all of both, of these bills were one bill. But the bill ended up being split into two bills because of conservatives, I say conservatives, but people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema who are conservative Democrats. And the reason it was split is because Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema had issues with the price tag. So they thought, okay, the Democrats did, we'll separate out the infrastructure, we'll pass that bill on its own. And then we'll figure out the reconciliation bill later, since we don't need Republicans to pass it, and we'll be good to go. So they worked out the infrastructure bill with both the conservative Democrats, Manchin Cinema, and a group of Republicans. So it's a bipartisan bill. That bill, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, is going to pass. It has bipartisan support. The reconciliation bill, however, will get zero Republican votes and therefore needs all the Democrats to vote yes on it. And this is where Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are problematic. Here's why. With the infrastructure bill passing the Senate first, progressives are worried that the moderates will not pass or support the larger spending bill if they passed infrastructure. So progressives said, hey, we're not going to vote on the infrastructure bill until we have a reassurance that the moderates are going to vote for the larger spending bill. The moderates, in turn, will not pass the spending bill unless the infrastructure bill is passed. We are at an impasse. So, here is Democratic Representative Premier Jayapal of Washington State 
on the readout on MSNBC to explain the whole situation. Yeah, Joy, it's so great to see you. And uh, yes, we were not for splitting up the bill in the first place. In fact, we told everyone we knew that that was a bad idea because what we didn't want to do is pit roads and bridges against childcare, against Correct. paid leave, against free community college. And when the decision was made to split the two bills, what we said in the Progressive Caucus, and we're a 96 member strong Progressive Caucus, we said that a majority of our members would not vote for the infrastructure bill, a much smaller bill. And while it has some good things, Joy, I would just say that, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who feel like the pro climate provisions in particular are actually negative, net negative in terms of carbon emissions if you just have that bill. And so what we're trying to do with the reconciliation bill is make sure that's the Build Back Better Act that has all of the rest of it. That's 85% of the president's agenda in the Build Back Better Act. And so we've said we will not vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill until we have a vote in the Senate on the reconciliation bill, because that is absolutely crucial. And we are not going to leave behind women and families who desperately need childcare and paid leave. You know, people who need uh, community college in order to be able to get those jobs in the infrastructure package, we're not gonna leave behind climate change. And while the infrastructure bill has a little bit of money for water, the reality is the vast majority of getting lead out of water, you mentioned Flint, is actually in the Build Back Better so a few things there, and sorry for the length of the clip, but I think she explained it all pretty well. The progressives, and she in particular, were not for splitting the bills in the first place because of exactly what's going on. They didn't want to pit roads and bridges against things like childcare and healthcare. But the infrastructure bill is smaller. And as she said, 85% of Biden's agenda is in the reconciliation bill, also known as the Build Back Better bill. 85%. So this $3.5 trillion bill is really the bulk of what needs to be passed. If you had to choose which bill should pass, as a Democrat, honestly, you want to pass this $3.5 trillion bill. It has all the policies in it that Biden and most Democrats campaigned on. And so it's what she's saying here is that, okay, the bills are split. The infrastructure bill is good to go. We're going to vote on that, no problem. However, this bill is more important, and we need to make sure this bill passes, and the only leverage they have is the infrastructure bill. But moderates continue to insist that the spending bill will cost too much money, citing the $3.5 trillion price tag. But they don't really provide much else other than the price tag, other than, oh, it's going to cost too much, it needs to be less. Now, it's important to keep in mind, progressives originally wanted this bill to be a $6 trillion bill, and that was spearheaded by Bernie Sanders, and they wanted a massive spending bill. And I've said this in other episodes before, but the Trump budgets were all over $4 trillion. We're talking about $3.5 trillion here. The progressives wanted $6 trillion. They came down. The progressives compromised. We are down to $3.5 trillion, and two senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema want even further compromise because apparently compromise isn't good enough for them. So, to explain himself, here's one of the Senate holdouts, Joe Manchin, on his position. If that means no infrastructure bill at all, will you still stick with $1.5 I've been very upfront and very fair. I mean, the bottom line is 
for this infrastructure, I mean, for not the infrastructure, but for the reconciliation bill. You got 1.1 or 1.2 on the on the infrastructure bill, and you have another two, uh, 250 billion for the Yusika bill. There's but an awful lot, and we already spent 5.4. The bottom. Zero. Are you willing to take zero? Well, that's up to them. They're going to be there, not me. So Manchin is saying here, oh, well, we're going to spend $1.2 trillion on infrastructure. We passed this other $250 billion bill. And oh, we already spent $5.4. And I think the $5.4 that he's referring to is actually the COVID relief from both the Biden and the Trump administration in the entirety, which, you know, the government is the government and the government is spending the government's money regardless of who's in office. But he's not even talking about the Democratic agenda. He's talking about how much money America has spent in the last couple of years. And he's Quabbling over the equivalent of $1.3 trillion. $1.3 trillion. So they spent $5.4, they're spending $1.2 on infrastructure, they spent this other $250 billion on this other bill, and he really can't justify spending an additional $1.3 trillion on these programs. Got one more clip from Joe Manchin here as well, where he kind of very simply lays out his position, which I disagree with, and I will get to. Not just time, they haven't, I mean, people pretty much know where I've been all along. And, I, and I've just said this, if you had X amount of dollars in your paycheck and you wanted to buy something, and that what you wanted to buy was not affordable right now, you'd save up and buy it later. That's all I'm saying. So what's our priorities? Children, pre-K, I'm strong on pre-K. Child care, child tax credits, we can do that, but do that in a, in a, in a compassionate way, targeted, you have basically the mean, the medium income is $68,000 in America. Can't we use targeted? You have 90 million people that have, they filed tax returns for $50,000 or less. Let's target it. I don't think a person that's making two, three, four hundred thousand or in as much need as a person on the lower end. If you have X amount, who do you help? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> the argument here is if you can't afford something, you shouldn't buy it. What's missing here, what's missing from this entire conversation is why they think we can't afford it. Where is the evidence that we cannot afford these programs? There hasn't been any. They keep on throwing numbers out there, but they provide no justification. There is a little bit of hypocrisy in what he just said there too. He said, the priorities are the children. But he also said it's up to progressives whether or not they're going to get a bill passed at all or go with zero and pass nothing. He said there, I'm strong on pre-K, which means he really wants pre-K for the kids. He specifically mentioned 90 million Americans, which is almost a third, just under a third of Americans, make 50000 or less, filed tax claims for 50000 or less, and he's saying we should give those people the benefits, 90 million people. However, He's also willing to kill this bill in its entirety if the progressives do not come down in their price, which means he's willing not to help the kids. He's willing not to help those families making 50000 or less. He's willing to not help them at all if the price tag does not come down. So because the Democrats, well, the progressives will not come down in another $1.3 trillion after already coming down $2.5 trillion, He's willing to give up these benefits to all of those people, including his own constituents in West Virginia. So Joe Manchin would rather save a trillion dollars for the company, not the company, sorry, the country, maybe the same, 
he'd rather save that money for the country while providing no evidence that we cannot afford to spend that money on these programs than help out 90 million Americans and send kids to pre-K. And that's a line that we need to talk about. That's something that we need to hold him accountable for. When politicians say things like this, we need to put it in context. And that is the context. If he says it's up to the progressives whether or not this bill is going to pass, that means he's willing to walk away if the progressives don't change. Which means that 90 million Americans and these kids are not going to get any of the help that is promised in these bills. Now, conversely, Representative Jayapal very clearly was able to spell out not only the support that the Democrats currently have for this bill, but also why it's so important. So here's Representative Jayapal. It's going to be back-to-back clips. I so appreciate that you put up that chart because while people will remember a road or a bridge, and those are important, Joy, I'm not saying they're not. For sure. I need them in my, in my district. But what people will really remember is when they wake up in the morning and they now can afford childcare. They now have paid family and medical leave. They now can send their kids to community college or trade school. They now have dental vision and hearing for their Medicare benefits. They now have uh, a real chance to tell their kids or their grandkids that the planet is gonna be here for them because we're really gonna take on climate change. 96% of Democrats in the House and the Senate and the President of the United States campaigned on this agenda and now want to deliver it. Later in the episode, I'm going to touch on that disparity in support, because I think that's also something that we're not really talking about enough, but we'll get to it. She lays out very clearly all the really important benefits that are in this bill, from pre-K to climate change to being able to afford the, the child care among other things. That's what's at stake, and that is what Joe Manchin is willing to sacrifice entirely if he doesn't get his way and Kirsten Sinema don't get, you know, their way as a group and get the spending bill down $1.2 And there is a little bit of this, I know it's not the most responsible mindset, right? But I I do want to think about this in in larger terms. He said that we spent $5.4 trillion on, I believe, COVID, $250 billion on this other bill, $1.2 trillion coming for inf- infrastructure. We're approaching $7.5 to $8, $8 trillion there. You add another $1.2, you're approaching $10. It's, you know, I don't know, 15% more. We're squabbling over 15% more of the total amount of money that he's worried about, 15%. But what we need to understand is, you know, there, there is value in that 15%, which he never addresses. He just never does it. So what I'd like to do next is I'd like to just, A, I want to review the infrastructure bill, not the spending bill, but infrastructure, just to show, you know, why that's a sure thing. And also remember that Joe Manchin is for passing that bill. And then we'll get into the spending bill. So the infrastructure bill, what is it? What's in it? Remember, it costs $1.2 trillion in that bill. $200 billion is to build and retrofit affordable housing for energy efficiency. There'd be about $175 billion to shift the nation to electric vehicles, and another $100 billion to upgrade the country's electric grid. Side note, there was an issue with funding with the infrastructure bill, and, the Democrat, and this applies to the spending bill as well. Do we tax more, or do we find other ways? 
And the Democrats wanted to tax more and the Republicans want to use these things called user fees. And a friend had posted online, you know, oh, you know, check out, you know, what's going to be in the spending bill. They want to incorporate user fees. It's the GOP that wants to incorporate user fees because the GOP doesn't want taxes to go up. So they'd rather charge us, the middle class, directly to essentially tax us for our use on certain products rather than raise taxes on, you know, the people who have the money. Just a note. But remember, this infrastructure bill will pass. It has bipartisan support. It's already been negotiated. It's basically a sure thing. But that's also why the progressives can leverage it. Both sides need infrastructure. Trump ran on infrastructure. Remember, we had infrastructure week. It never happened. The bills never passed. Both sides need this. Both have campaigned on it. And they know it will pass easily. And they have enough votes in the House and the Senate to do it. However, the Progressive Caucus in the House is so large that if they all vote no, the bill will not pass the House. So they are stopping this bill from moving forward. They are frustrating other Democrats, but also the Republicans, because this infrastructure bill is not going to pass without the reconciliation bill. So what is so controversial about this reconciliation bill? The spending bill or the appropriations bill, also known as the 10-year Build Back Better Act, has a price tag of $3.5 trillion, which I said a million times. If the price tag is $3.5 trillion, what are we getting for it? And why are Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema so vehemently opposed to the number $3.5 trillion? They hate it. If it were $3.4, maybe they'd like it. $3.5, no way, it's terrible. Just kidding. But as we've heard, the major issue is cost. As I stated before, Democrats wanted this bill, or many of them, wanted this bill to be $6 trillion. They've already cut that number nearly in half. Another fun fact that we don't talk about enough, the media certainly doesn't, and Democrats don't because Democrats are really bad at plugging their own ideas, is this is not just a $3.5 trillion bill. It's not, oh, we're going to spend $3.5 trillion right now. This is $3.5 trillion over 10 years. Now, we spent $3.4 trillion just on COVID relief this year. $3.4 trillion, one year, 3.4, but we're talking about $3.5 trillion with the spending bill over 10 years. Also for comparison, in fiscal year 21, we spent $1 trillion on the military. So of all the government departments and all of the government programs and all the social benefits out there, we spent a trillion on one, one aspect of our government in the DOD, $1 trillion. So over 10 years, we're going to spend $10 trillion on the military. What's being proposed in this budget is a $3.5 trillion budget plan over 10 years, which means we're going to spend about $350 billion per year for these items, which is a third of what we spend on the military per year. One third. So what are we getting? What will the middle class get in return if we spend one third of what we spend on the military on us? For once, let's give the people something. We can't use tanks on a daily basis. We can't use missiles on a daily basis. I know that these things protect us from enemies far and wide, but the middle class would like something too from our legislators. So what do we get for one third of what we spend on the military? And I'll get to that in a minute. But we also only spend $350 billion a year on education. And by the way, that's only 4% of our total spending. We only spend $60 billion on climate each year, which is 0.7% of our spending. Uh, it was 1.1 in 2019. Fiscal year 19 is a little bit more accurate to look at as far as spending goes because there was no COVID. But I've got a really cool site linked below. It's uh, usaspending.gov. 
And you can basically go in there and you can put in the fiscal year and you can explore the whole budget based on department or social area. And it breaks everything down into percentages and it's all visual. And I'm a visual learner. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, usaspending.gov below, check that out. Back to the 350 billion. What are we getting for 350 billion per year? First, the plan is going to extend the wildly popular child tax credit through 2025. Now, that tax credit was found just this year to reduce child poverty from 13.7% to 6.5%. It cut it in half in one year, and that's from the Urban Institute. In this bill, Medicare would also now cover dental, vision, and hearing. So people who qualify for Medicare will get the full package now. They don't need to worry about getting private dental care and private vision somewhere else. They can get everything through Medicare. This bill will also lower the Medicare eligibility age to age 60, which means that you can get the government health care earlier on in your life, which means you don't have to depend on private insurance or you don't have to pay as much if you don't need to because you'll qualify for Medicare. And also as part of this program, the price of prescription drugs should come down because the government in this bill is putting in that it can negotiate with the drug companies about drug costs, not only for the private industry, but also for Medicare, which it currently cannot do. The government currently cannot negotiate drug prices for Medicare, which is part of the reason why Americans pay more for prescription drugs than any other nation on earth. A threshold or a limit is in place where healthcare premiums cannot exceed more than 8.5% of the household salary. So not only are they going to try to reduce premiums, but also premiums will not be able to exceed X amount of money per household, depending on how much they make. To fund the bill, they're going to raise taxes, but the bill prohibits taxes from being raised on any household that makes under $400,000 a year. It prohibits it. The taxes cannot go up. If your household makes under $400,000 a year, which is 99% of American households, it includes funding for a massive improvement in green energy and stricter goals on climate. It includes what we talked about earlier, the universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds. That alone will save the average family, as predicted, $3,000 a year. And under Biden's proposal, low and middle income households would pay no more than 7% of their income for childcare. And I think these thresholds are important because it means, okay, we're going to lower the price, but it's still going to be unaffordable. They're saying, even if it's unaffordable, once you reach 7% for childcare, you won't pay anymore. Once you reach 8.5% for healthcare premiums, you won't pay anymore. They are hard limiting what you will be legally bound to spend for these services. It's more than just a reduction, it's a guarantee. Also in this plan, free two-year tuition for college, increase in the amount of money that the Pell Grants, which are uh, government grants for higher education, an increase in the funding for those grants. It also includes 12 weeks of paid parental leave for Americans. It looks like that will gradually scale up. So by the 10th year, we'll be up to 12 weeks. So I think we're going to kind of scale that up. I think from six to 12 is where we're at now. It calls for a tax on imports from polluting countries. Because a lot of the argument from conservatives or people who don't want to invest too much in green energy say, well, 
it doesn't matter what America does for climate change because China is still polluting. Well, if China is going to pollute, we're going to tax all their imports because they pollute, which means the price of Chinese goods will go up, which means that less people will buy them, which means that China gets hurt economically, which incentivizes China to not pollute. And we are the wealthiest consumer base in the world, so we can do that, for better or for worse. And also, there's a plan to reduce power emissions by 80% by the year 2030, which is massive, massive. And that's on top of what's included in the infrastructure bill to reduce emissions. So there's a lot in this bill. There's a ton in this bill. And that's not everything. Those are just the highlights. Just to break down costs a little bit, $726 billion is going to go to the Health, Labor, Education, and Pensions Committee, uh, $135 billion to the Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry, $330 billion to the Banking Committee to invest in public housing, housing trust fund, housing affordability and equity in the community, and $198 billion is going to go to the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, including instructions largely related to clean energy development. The bill is massive. It is comprehensive, but everything that I just ran off, we get, the middle class, we get it for $350 billion a year. That's 10% of what we got for COVID. 10%. So I'm telling you that for 10% of what we needed to get through COVID, we can have all of that. We can have all of that. And by the way, at no increase in cost to us, there will be no taxes raised due to these programs, because if you make under 400000 a year, the bill prohibits an increase in taxes for these programs. So to counter Joe Manchin, last week, let's say I spent, I don't know, $10,000 on a brand new car. And it's great. It works really well. Um, it gets me around, you know, little, uh, little two-door. Uh, can't haul too much in it, but, you know, it's nice. Spent 10000 for it. But this week, Someone told me that I could get, I don't know, a Land Rover SUV or something along those lines. I can get a big, fancy, luxury SUV, and I can get that car for $1,000. I'm going to spend the $1,000. I'm going to buy the luxury SUV for 10% less than I bought the car last week for, which barely gets me around town, and then I'm going to sell that thing away. I mean, you know, the government's not selling anything here. It doesn't make sense to deny this bill for the small price tag. $350 billion a year is not a lot of money comparatively. Remember, we spent a trillion on the military alone. So for $350 billion a year, universal pre-K, two free years of college, hard caps on how much you'll pay for a healthcare premium and on childcare. This is huge. This will save the middle class a ton of money. Lower drug prices. Child tax credit to 2025, lower prices on prescription drugs, all for $350 billion a year, a small amount of our total budget, and we get all that. This is a huge value. This is like going to the grocery store and everything you need is on sale, 50%, everything, and you get it all. You get it all and you get to the register, and guess what? It's not a scam. You get everything at a discount just because it's a special Friday or something. That's the equivalent here. So when we talk about $3.5 for this bill, that's over 10 years. That is the total 
cumulative cost of all of these programs over the course of 10 years. The Democrat mistake in this bill is calling it a $3.5 trillion bill. And there's a catch-22 here because the Democrats want to show their constituents that, hey, we're willing to spend money on the middle class. But that gets reversed on us by the GOP propaganda machine. They say, oh, it's so expensive, $3.5 trillion, and it gets turned on us. And then their people take up their talking points because that's what happens. And all of a sudden, $3.5 trillion is a bad thing, even though it's a direct investment in the middle class. In the middle, not corporate America, not the wealthy, not the 1%, in the middle class, in the people who need it, in the people, as Joe Manchin said, who make 50000 a year or less will benefit the most from this. We need that. The Democrats needed to change their public-facing message on this to for just $350 billion a year. For one-third of what we spend on the military per year, we can change the lives of all almost every American in our country. And they don't take that tact and it really, really pisses me off because they're smart people. I don't understand why they can't advertise. They're really bad at it. Then you got Mitch McConnell over there who can barely move his face muscles. And you know they've got like the greatest propaganda machine to ever exist on the planet where they can turn gold into literally horse shit and then sell it to you for more than the original value of the gold itself. It's unbelievable. The Democrats need to, to do better on the marketing. So I'm marketing for them. For $350 billion a year, this bill will change your life. I guarantee it for the better. You'll have more money in your pocket. Get behind this bill. I don't care if you're a Democrat. I don't care if you're a Republican or an independent. I don't care if you don't vote. Get behind this bill because it is immense value immense value. If you're skeptical, if you're still saying, oh, I don't know, three and a half trillion, you know, they're going to pay for it somehow. And if they're not taxing us, what's going on? Here's how they're going to pay for it. The corporate tax rate is going to go up and it's going to go up from 21% to 26%. And the top income tax rate for Americans making over $400,000 will increase from 37% to 39.6%. We're going up. Two and a half percent, guys, it's devastating. The top capital gains rate would also go from 20 to 25 percent. We have to note here, because I'm frustrated about this too, that under Obama, the corporate tax rate was 35 percent. Under Biden, we're going from 21 to 26. We're not even raising the corporate tax rate back to pre-Trump tax rates. Not even close. We're still 9 percent underneath that. And the GOP is crying foul like we're raising the corporate rate to historic highs. And we can't allow that kind of messaging to exist in the world. So we're going from 21 to 26%, which is 9% lower than the pre-Trump tax rate. And guess what? We should be way higher than that anyway for corporate tax rate. Way higher. But that's just my frustration. The top marginal income rate is going up to 39.6, which is exactly what it was prior to the Trump administration. So we're just returning to 2016 there. But I'm upset about this too, because I get to be upset today. For historical reference, the marginal tax rate has been as high as 94% in our nation's history. 94%. Just to explain marginal tax rates really quick, because if you don't, if you haven't read into taxes and stuff, and I didn't understand this, you know, at first either, but a marginal tax rate works in tiers. So basically, let's say I make $100,000 and the top tax rate, 
you know, at a hundred thousand dollars is 90%. Okay. So that doesn't mean that all my money gets taxed at 90% and now I only get $10,000. Let's say the lowest rate is, I don't know, uh, 5%. 5% is the lower end of the marginal tax rate bracket. So for the first $20,000 you make, you're only taxed at 5%. Okay. And then after that, every dollar after you make after that, from 20,000 to 50,000, well, that's going to be taxed at, I don't know, 20%. So from 20 to 40,000, that money, that $20,000 gets taxed at 40%. And then from 40 to, let's call it 80, uh, gets taxed at 60%. So from 40,000 to 80,000, that money alone, just that money gets taxed at 80%. And then 100,000 and up, that will be taxed at 90%. It's not like all your money gets taxed at the same rate. Your money gets taxed based on where it falls in basically the earnings ladder. So when we're saying things like 94% tax, oh my God, like they only made, you know, they took all their money. No, they didn't. They took 94% of the absolute highest end of the money people were making. So we had that in this country, 94%. For reference, from 1936 to 1965, so 30 years, for 30 years, the top marginal tax rate never dropped below 79%. For 30 years, the tax rate, the top highest marginal income tax rate was 79% or higher. And guess what? Those were some of the strongest economic years in our nation's history. Oh, also, by the way, we had unions, we had manufacturing, we had all of that great stuff that people still call for. The people who want to return to better days Forget that in those days, we had a top marginal tax rate of 79%, but they don't want to return to that, even though it was part of the very time period that they want so badly to return to, 79%. What changed? In 1980, the tax rate was 70%. By 1988, it was down to 28%. Reagan, that's more than half of the national revenue eliminated in under a decade, because we might forget this sometimes. But taxes are how the government makes money so that the government can, you know, provide for Americans. If you take away half of the government's money, you can't pay for your programs. You can't pay for even critical programs. You cut that money out and you have to pay your bills, but you don't have the money coming in. It's basically like you're on hyper unemployment because you've literally cut yourself off from financing. We need taxes to pay for the things that the government needs to pay for. And the same thing goes for this whole debt ceiling argument. And I'm not going to talk about that today, but basically you got to pay the bills and to pay the bills, you got to raise the taxes. We're going to pay the taxes. And we are paying historically low taxes in America right now. And we have been for decades. Anyway, that info is from the Policy Tax Center. Link is down in the sources. Check it out there. My point with the whole tax spiel is we have plenty of headroom to increase revenue by raising the tax rates further and easily paying for the $3.5 trillion bill. But Manchin and Cinema, and frankly, the whole Biden administration, they haven't even dared to go there. We're not even returning to pre-Trump tax rates, and Manchin and Cinema and even Joe Biden aren't saying, well, you know, you know how we get to $3.5 trillion? We raise that top rate higher. We return it to pre-Trump days. We go back four years. Hasn't even been thrown out. I'm sure in private talks it has been, but Manchin would rather not pass this bill than raise the top marginal rate. 
Now, with this bill and the infrastructure bill, Democrats were looking to beef up tax enforcement. They wanted the Internal Revenue Service to be able to go after people who owed them money. Now, when I say people, let's be clear, we're talking about large corporations and potential fraud cases, offshore accounts, things like that. But the Republicans said, oh, no, we don't want to give the IRS the power to enforce the law and get the money that's owed to them because that, you know, we don't want to harass people. No, we should not do that. Let's do the user credit thing where we make the middle class pay more money for the stuff that they buy. Again, the GOP interest is corporate America, period. Just want to make that clear here. That's why they're all hard-nosed on this bill, because guess what? It's a middle-class bill. If the GOP votes against it and you're not part of the 1%, that means it's probably something that will benefit you. Just for future reference. As a general note, American families pay about $6,000 per year for corporate subsidies. So $6,000 of the taxes that you pay are going straight through the government to the corporations. Walmart alone receives nearly eight billion dollars a year. Eight billion with a B. With billions more going to other large companies in the form of grants and tax breaks and write-offs, etc. Oh, and by the way, Walmart doesn't pay income taxes, so they don't have to pay taxes, and then we just hand them eight billion dollars because. Because we worship corporations in this country because we forget that the people have power. Anyway, the Joint Committee on Taxation estimates that the actual tax changes Headed by Democrats here, would raise more than $2 trillion in revenue over 10 years, with roughly $1 trillion in taxes from high income Americans and a trillion from corporate and international tax reforms. So there you have it. That's how we pay for it. It's paid for. We're raising the taxes. And if you're like, oh, well, that still doesn't sound like quite enough money, well, don't worry. In the future, we can raise taxes even higher back where they should be, and no one will get hurt by it because they weren't before, and we'll be fine. We have headroom. So, sorry, ranting a little bit here, but I think legislation should benefit the people, and if it can do so directly, and not this whole like, oh, well, you know, if we pay the corporation to do this, this, and this, then maybe, maybe, no guarantee, they'll do this, 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 and this, which maybe will result in a slight net positive for the little people. No, I trust bills that directly benefit the middle people, like this one. Directly. Hey, from the government to the little person, to the middle class, this is a direct benefit to you. Hey, thanks, government. Thank you for finally doing something for us that doesn't take trickle down and like nine different steps and, you know, contractual obligations and blah, blah. Thank you. Americans should be happy that we finally get some transparency and a direct benefit. Or do we? Because this bill's in jeopardy and that's the point of this episode. And the reason this bill is in jeopardy is because our government has one other issue. And we've seen this issue being played out over the last several decades, but now it's that much more clear. And what I'm talking about is minority control. The Republicans have managed over the last two decades especially to be able to thwart any and all legislative progress if they hold the minority in one or both chambers. They utilize the filibuster. They just don't bring bills to the floor. If the Democrats have the House and the House passes 400 bills, Mitch McConnell will just let those bills sit on his desk and go nowhere until the Republicans gain full control of the government. They stonewall. They do nothing. So the will of the people is subverted by the will of the minority party, who the majority of Americans did not vote for to represent them, which means that the needs of most of the Americans 
and the messages that they are sending to Washington and the messengers they are sending to Washington are being thwarted by the minority of not just representatives, but Americans. The minority of Americans are able to subvert the overall will of the majority in our current government. And that's problematic in itself. And there's supposed to be checks and balances, but at this point, the Republicans just will not pass anything Democratic at all. And we've got gerrymandering and all the other stuff in there makes it harder for Democrats to get in, the voting laws, and we've talked about that before. But basically, if the Republican Party is not in full control of the government in all aspects, they still basically find a way to take control because they just stall out the government. And then they blame the Democrats for stalling out the government, even though they're stalling out the government. But people are gullible and they don't pay attention every day to the news because who has time to do that every day? So they're just like, hey, you know what? The Democrats have been in charge for four years and nothing has happened. So it must be the Democrats' fault because they don't see or hear or listen to the fact that, hey, the Republicans just say no to everything all the time because that's not really newsworthy. Can't package it well, but that's how it is. That's how it's working. But we've known that for a little bit and it's not super surprising But what really brings this into focus is exactly what's going on with this bill within just the Democratic Party. So here's some numbers. The vast majority of Democrats in the House, if not all the members in the House, are willing to pass this appropriations bill. There are 220 Democrats in the House, 220. There are 50 senators that are Democrats in the Senate, 270. We have 270 Democrats in Congress. 268 of those people, 268 of our representatives, like 99.66% of all the representatives for the Democrats, you know, constituents represented there, want to pass this bill. 99.66% want to pass this bill. But because two, two don't, it's not passing. And I know that we're, we're, you know, I'm thinking about this without considering the GOP at all. But the GOP is not going to vote yes on anything because they won't, because in this day and age, it is politically disadvantageous for you to vote with the other party on something, even if it's beneficial, because apparently people won't vote for you if you pass good stuff for the other party with the other party. You know, everyone wants compromise, but if they compromise, apparently won't work at the voting booth. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they tell us. So we have two senators and 268 other congressmen. And those two are thwarting the entire Biden agenda. And this is what is wrong with Congress. When you have a 268 to 2 majority, that bill should easily pass. Even if we take Republicans into the fold, I believe it's a 268 to 250 overall Congress win for the Democrats. So they've still got 18 votes more which is much closer to 50%, but they've still got the majority of the entirety of Congress supporting this $3.5 trillion bill. If Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema were, you know, supported by 40% of Democrats in Congress, I'd be like, okay, you know, they need to talk it out. They'll figure it out. They're not. They're on an island. They're not even on an island. They're on a sandbar in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that's uncharted on any map and will not be charted on any map because the sea levels are going to rise and cover the sandbar and 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 cinema and mansion will find a way to survive it because apparently they're more powerful than everybody else. So West Virginians and 
half of West Virginia and half of Arizona are apparently more important than the entirety of constituents represented by Democrats in the rest of the country. And that is bullshit. It's bullshit. Like I said, we knew about the minority control Republicans to Democrats and all the things that Mitch McConnell has been able to do to make government not work. But when we're seeing it to this level within one party with a 268 to two advantage and still not being able to pass the bill, it's, it's egregious. It's really egregious. And on the part of Manchin and Cinema, it's a little bit disgusting. It's disgusting that 268 of your colleagues are for something, but you think that you are so self-important that you can not only get them to compromise once and cut their spending from 6 trillion to 3.5, but now you want them to go from 3.5 to 1.2 just because if your one vote doesn't get through, they can't get the bill. So rather than think like, hey, we are vastly in the minority here. Let's go along with this one. They already didn't pass voting rights because of us, and they already came down on infrastructure because of us, maybe this one time we could, you know, go along with the 268 peers to our two and support a bill because they've compromised with us on literally everything for the last 10 months. You think that they would just go with it, but they think they are so self-important that they can screw this up. And it's not about their constituents because their constituents benefit from this bill as much as you or I do. This is about corporate interest. This is the fact that Joe Manchin takes a lot of money from healthcare corporations and healthcare companies, private, stand to lose a lot of revenue because if drug prices are going down and healthcare premiums are going to be capped and Obamacare is going to be expanded, then, well, guess what? They're on the, you know, the rough end of the stick or whatever the phrase is. You tell me, tell me in the comments what the phrase is. I don't know. I forgot. They're on the rough end of the stick. They get the raw deal. And you know what? They should. Because when you overcharge for everything for decades, you deserve to lose. That's how it works. If you want to compete in the marketplace, try adjusting your prices to compete with the government. Maybe that'll work because, you know, free market and everything else. Suck it up, healthcare industry. God, you've taken advantage of Americans long enough. Give it up. Take your victory. You won. You you boatload of money. You know, have fun with it. And now come back to reality and try to compete with the market and stop bribing senators to ruin it for the rest of us. We don't like it. Anyway, I'm not passionate on this subject at all. I don't have any feelings whatsoever. Government is boring and inconsequential and nothing they do really has any effect on anybody. So why do I even care? This is a monumental bill. This bill helps anybody who isn't rich because having $400,000 a year for your household is being rich. This helps anybody who isn't rich who has kids. Blanket. Blanket help for anyone who isn't rich who has kids. Anyone who's over 60. Blanket help through Medicare. Anyone who pays too much for drug prices, which is anyone who takes a prescription drug in this country, which is everybody benefits from this bill. If the only thing that you don't like about this bill is the price tag, you are missing the point of government. If the government comes to you and says, we can give you all of this for this much money and we have a plan to pay for it, will you take it? And you say, ah, I don't care if you can pay for it. That's too much anyway. You don't have a point. You have an argument and you're screwing yourself. 
Don't screw yourself. Take it. Take the help. Let the government help you. That's what the government is there for. We live in a society. We're in this together. My dollars help you. Your dollars help me. Our dollars, you know, go from, you know, our specialty. They go out there to help people who don't have that specialty. Everything gets worked out so that the society is lifted up because if you were in the military, you know that you're only as strong as your weakest person. And that applies to the government and all Americans too. Our weakest American represents our true nature. That person was left there by us, failed by us, and wherever they are on that totem pole, wherever they are on that ladder, it's the responsibility of Americans to make sure that we can pick them up. And we have a chance to do that for so many people with this bill. So many, so many, so many people, especially parents suffering with childcare costs. We've got the child tax credit in there. And education, our education in this country is not great. And we're going to throw two free years up front, two free years on the end, four more years of education for free for your kids, for the next generations coming up. That's huge. Maybe we'll be able to compete on the world stage again when it comes to education. Maybe for the thousands and thousands of unfilled, skilled positions in America that can't be filled because we literally don't have enough smart people in the country to fill them, maybe we can fill some of those jobs. Imagine what that will do for the economy. Imagine what that will do for the people who go through and found small businesses and grow those businesses. There's net positive effect and only net positive effect here. And the fact that two senators outside of the GOP who suck, two senators can ruin this for 268 other representatives and all the people that they represent, because this is real, because this is real money, because this has real impact, because this matters, that is a gross failure in the system of our government. The fact that that can happen is a gross failure in the system of our government. And on a more reasonable level, it's a gross failure on the Democratic Party. Get your shit together, get your people together, and rein Joe Manchin in. Rein him in. He has bullied the entire party for 10 months and he's gotten all the compromise he's asked for and given nothing. Nothing. For once. Maybe he could put the American people to the forefront of his mind and do something for the American people for 15% of the total spending that he's complaining about. Even though he voted for the Trump budgets, which were over $4 trillion. Twice. Accountability, people. Democrats, accountability. So, let's wrap up. What are some potential resolutions for this bill? Um, Earlier on CNN today, David Gergen was speaking, and he mentioned it might be possible to reduce the term of the plan from 10 years to 5 years to lower the price, but also not to sacrifice any of the programs. And if there had to be a compromise, I think that's it. I think that's the way to go. All of these programs are too important. And the things that Democrats often overlook is there really aren't any programs that Democrats have instituted that have not become wildly popular with the American people within five to 10 years. And if these programs go into effect, the American people aren't going to want to give up free childcare. The American people aren't going to want to give up the child tax credit. The American people aren't going to want to pay more than 8.5% for their health care premiums or 7% for child care after they've experienced the benefits of this bill. And the Democrats need to understand 
All we need to do is pass these bills for two years at a time and show the American people that like, hey, check it out. Pretty cool, right? And the American people are like, oh, I didn't even know this was you guys. Like, thanks. It is nice. We don't want to get rid of that. And then when the GOP is like, oh, we got to slash this thing and we're going to slash the early pre-K, you can't afford it. Republican Americans, regular citizens will say, uh, no, we like the universal pre-K. We like that. We want to keep it. Thank you. And then the GOP is either going to have to change their tune or just ignore their own constituents further. So just pass this bill for a limited term. Rather than cut spending and cut programs, rather than go for super compromise, cut the spending to five years, keep the same price tag proportionally, and and let these programs grow. And then Joe Manchin in four years, if he's still in office, He won't be able to do it either. He won't be able to say we can't justify the spending on these programs because these programs will have been proven effective. It's sad that we need to do that, but I do think that's probably the best compromise. Now, I don't think we should compromise at all. I think someone, Pelosi and Biden and Schumer, should, you know, take Manchin and Cinema into a dark room and tell them how it's going to be because we've already given them everything we need and they're not being team players and make some threats. I don't mean to go mob on it, but like it's ridiculous at this point. They're holding the entire party. They're holding the entire Biden agenda hostage. They are willing to risk a Trump presidency in 2024 over $1.2 trillion, a very small percentage of what we spend on the budget, willing to reinstall Trump effectively because if Biden and this administration do not pass these bills, we have nothing to run on. Not only in the midterms, but 2024. So we need we need this. We need this. And $1.2 trillion is not worth the 2024 Trump presidency, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Use your brains. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I would prefer no compromise. Pass three and a half trillion. Let's fund these things for 10 years. Let's go. Give the American people something to hang their hats on for once. I wouldn't compromise. But if we're going to compromise, cut the term. Don't cut the programs. Don't cut the spending proportionally. Pass the bill for five. Get it done. Get the infrastructure out there. Get the roads and bridges looking good. 2022 could be a great year for Democrats if we can run on these programs and say, we got it done. And oh, by the way, we did it without a single Republican vote. These programs you love, Republicans didn't even vote for, wouldn't even consider. So I know I've been maybe a little louder this episode, maybe a little more energized. And I apologize if that comes off the wrong way. But I am passionate about this stuff. The reason I'm passionate about politics, the reason that the tagline for the show is compassionate politics is because politics matter. They do make a difference in people's lives. These programs are transformative. They can change the lives of people, not only people who make less than 50,000 a year, but people who make between 50,000 a year and 400,000 a year. Housing prices that are out of control, uh, the housing market's out of control, inflation's going up a little bit. Like people need help. And we had COVID and we had unemployment and people are behind on rent and mortgages and thereby landlords aren't getting their full rent money. So they're, you know, they're in trouble with banks too. And everyone needs help. Here's help. Here it is, guys. Like, Let's take it. It matters. It makes a difference, not just because it's money, but because the money is well-intentioned and it's direct. And I cannot understate that point enough. This money is direct. Government 
to the American people in the form of direct savings with hard thresholds on specific programs. There is no middleman. There is no trickle down. There is no expectation that, well, you know, the corporations will probably do the right thing and not cash out their investors. There's none of that. This is money straight, straight to us, saving straight to us, convenience with childcare and universal pre-K and two years of straight to us, straight, no middleman. And that's why it matters. And that's why when we talk about politics, we need to remember this stuff affects real lives, most of our lives. And it affects those who need it most. People who really need the help and don't have it otherwise, in large part because of the failings of our system currently, already. Our current government system, our current culture is putting them largely, in many ways, in the positions they're in. And if we improve those things with bills like this, we lift everybody up. When the bottom comes up, the top comes up. So it's really important that we pass bills like this. If you're skeptical still, let me know in the comments. Let me know what you think. Let me know why you don't think this bill should pass. Let me know why you think three and a half trillion is too much or why we can't afford it because I don't understand. I don't. Show me some forecast about how we're going to pay 60% of our salary in taxes because of this program in 10 years, but that's not out there right now. Not that I've seen. Let me know in the comments what you think. Let me know if you're for this bill, what you're most excited about. If you're against the bill, why? With you know some reasoning, let's have a conversation about that. I'd appreciate it. And um, let's hope that they get this done uh, this week. My faith in Nancy Pelosi and, and Joe Biden, I think Chuck Schumer's semi-useless, but you know, let's get it done. Let's get this stuff done. Hopefully the American people will see these direct benefits. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening to the New Deal podcast. I really appreciate it. Please, if you like what you hear, rate and review, whether you're listening on the podcast, watching on YouTube, or just hanging out on the Facebook page. Drop me a comment there. Let me know how I'm doing. I'm interested. Uh, I will uh, make changes to the show if, uh, if need be to give you guys a better experience. So once again, thank you so much for listening to the New Deal. New Deal out.